Hello, family, and welcome to Normal with Autism, the podcast where we are walking with faith on this side of the spectrum, and we are inviting you to the kitchen table to experience the joy in the journey. I'm Tara. I'm Samantha. Just kidding. I'm Sarah. (laughs) Well, you mix it up. You regularly, whenever I text you, you regularly say like, oh my God, are you firing me? So we could, (laughs) we could do a whole episode at some point where like we psych everybody out and we're like, no, this isn't Sarah anymore. This is her evil twin sister or something like that. We could do that. God, could you imagine a world with two Sarahs? Yes. Yes. I meet, you know what? I meet people regularly. And the first, do you do this? The first thing I do is I go, oh, this person reminds me of so-and-so. Do you do that? No. Never? Not really. Well, our marketing manager lady, our sweet, sweet, lovely Erin reminds me of you. Oh, really? Well, yeah, because I texted her, like, at one point this week, I texted her, and I was like, hey, Aaron, I have to have a difficult conversation, and she, like, literally texted back like you do, like, oh, my God, what did I do? What's wrong is the difficult conversation with me, and I just... Uh, So her anxiety reminds me of my anxiety. (laughs) Got you. Yes. It's a very similar flavor. You have a very similar flavor of anxiety. So, yeah. That's just trauma. Just... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Are we going to go there this early? Trauma made me funny, but also in very small doses. What's the title of your book that you're going to put together? That you're going to sell to Tina Fey? Oh, and that's the normal side of my family? Yeah. That one? That's the normal side of my family. Yeah. You have to say it like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Do you think anyone will buy it? Who would I don't... play me in a movie? Um, Melissa McCarthy? Yeah, you guys have very similar bone structure. Yes. And Mm -hmm. kind of like delivery. And yeah, I would I would make that happen. I I would love that. that. Um, We'll just go back to you. Huh? Who would play? play Oh, would you want me in your life story? Duh. Oh, my God. I feel so special. Who's going to play us in the movie based on the podcast? Uh, Can Jessica Biel play me? Oh, she's so beautiful. She is. She's she's very cute. Yeah, I think she could. Do you think I could do you think she could pull that off? Yeah. Like people so. would buy that? Like me, Jessica Beal. It's kinda I'm gonna send her a DM just now, like just to, just see, to see what her schedule looks like. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I'm sure well there's I don't there California's in lockdown again. Well, do you think Justin Timberlake could play Keith? <laughs> Why do you? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I mean, all we need is his like, that the voice me, and disapproving stare. Because I don't get. <laughs> I don't. I don't get the connection. I mean, because their husband and wife, and your husband and wife. Oh, oh, oh! No, but... I was thinking, if if someone plays Keith, it would be Kevin Smith would play Keith because same last name, kind of look alike, the same. Yes. Yeah. Both lost like a ton of weight. Both yeah. talk about the same. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, if you're listening right now, will you please pause for a minute, rate, review, and subscribe? Did we just do our check-in? 
with each other? Was that our check? I don't know. Was that how are you, Tara? Uh, what's the point? I wrote down what's the point of checking in because pandemic and racism. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> like two things we shouldn't be laughing about, and I'm, I'm laughing because I mean, <laughs> y'all need you to. You don't see laugh, s- you'll cry. Yeah, that's very true. Y'all need to see Sarah's face when I said that because she was just like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Have you what um what strides right now or what's co- currently going on for you and your I know you and I are are doing anti-racism work. What uh, yeah. what are so you into still, right now? I'm still focusing on books because that's what I like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm in the middle of I don't know if I talked about this last time. It's a book by um, and I'm probably not saying it right. Ta-Nehisi Coates um, is called Eight Years in Power or We Were Eight Years in Power um, and he's a writer for The Atlantic Oh, and um, so it's essays that he wrote while Obama was in office oh. and they're amazing he, like he's such a good writer okay um, I was first introduced to him with a his most recent book is called The Water Dancer and it's about a slave who escapes and is kind of like time travel-y Mm. but in a not weird way um but it's so like the writing's so good it took me so long to get through it because i would just like because i listened to the audiobook i would pause it and like rewind and i'm just like i just need to soak in that sentence nice. like he's so incredible okay so i've been listening to that he has a lot of really good um a lot of really good essays in there and then um i've kind of gone back to fiction just to like give myself a little break um, but I didn't really do this on purpose, but I've been listening to, um, I listened to three books this week and one was set in Mexico, one was set in the Dominican Republic and the one I'm listening to now is set in India. So I'm like, I didn't really mean to do this, but I'm learning about other cultures. That's good. That way. So. Nice. Um, well, then, I yeah, just, you know, keeping up with the same, you know, trying to research and follow people and, you know, yeah. just education. Yeah. I am heavily into um, Rachel Cargill. Um, following her on Instagram, I have bought a couple books from her bookshop, her bookstore. It's up in Akron. When this whole thing's over, we need to go up there. Oh, nice. What's this called? What's it called? Elizabeth's of Akron. Ooh. I think it's named after her mom. Um, so I bought a couple books from her shop. And following her, and I think I think I donated. She also runs a mental health program for um, Black people, um, oh, nice. but and I think it's also people of color. Um, but she specifically focuses on minority mental health, and that's nice. very near and dear to my heart. Um, so that's the Loveland Foundation. So that's like I'm trying because there's so much. I'm trying to pick things that I'm familiar with. So like mental mm-hmm. health. So I would support that and mm-hmm. try to dive deeper into that. Um, but yeah, like you said, reading and donating. Um, haven't felt comfortable enough to go out to another protest like we did before. Um, yeah, I'm getting like more and more anxious about yes. the, the numbers and yes you know, people's lack of 
um, mask and all of that. So yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I can't. And that with that, I can't even bring myself to think about school. Um, I we're lucky enough that Finn, his school is a pandemic center, licensed as a pandemic center. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't know what things are going to look like for Q because it's his senior year and that kind of breaks my heart. Like we had our friend, her daughter yeah. went through her senior year this last year and I was broken hearted for her. Um, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go for him. So I'm kind of worried about that right now. Yeah. Fortunately, he's thinking about college. So that's kind of a, that's a good distraction. So we've mm-hmm. been kind of focusing on picking out some schools to visit and apply to and that okay. kind of thing. So, so that's good. And Owen's, what yeah. what's Owen's plan for the school year? Uh, I think the same as now. He's okay. been going every day to a summer program. Um, at his school, everyone has their own room and their own bathroom mm-hmm. and their own one-on-one aid anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, there's not a lot of like they do groups and stuff but you know they can just kind of space that out i guess right um but the plan is just to continue on as normal hopefully that gets to stay the plan yeah wear your mask people let's get this over with yes wear your mask wash your hands yes um don't be racist don't be racist so speaking of anxiety we actually (laughs) have a guest (laughs) that's gonna help us work through all of our anxiety tonight he's going to he's going to cure me tonight it it is it's gonna happen um and just about the world falling apart and he's gonna help us with that a little bit so i want to introduce sean he is a therapist and he is autistic and specializes in working with autistic kids and adults sean welcome to our podcast we are so excited to have you yay yay (laughs) oh i just love that introduction although i feel like i've been getting it a lot lately like with the people i work for like this covid thing and it's like yeah it's really weird like there is oh it's it's a lot of anxiety for a lot of people and it's kind of a really hard it's just really hard and i just saw medicaid numbers today for the state of wisconsin something like a hundred thousand or seventy seven thousand new enrollees from march to june wow and they're anticipating another two hundred thousand by june 2021 so it's unreal how hard this is hitting people yeah yeah well and you're a therapist Mm-hmm. What's your um, what's your licensure? Because I know here in Ohio, because you're in Wisconsin, here in Ohio, we're licensed professional clinical mm-hmm. counselors, LPCC. What's your letters so after my, your name? Mine, I have two sets of letters after my name. So my first set is an advanced practice social worker. So that means I do clinical social work under a licensed clinical social worker. So basically, I do therapy, and then I have M-I-N-T after my name, so which that's just a membership to the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, um, so I'm part of the fall incoming class, so we'll be doing some training with that here in the future, which is kind of cool. Nice, nice. nice. Yeah. And what, tell us a little bit about um, 
you know, who you are, kind of what you sure. do. Okay. So I'm Sean. Um, I have a, two beautiful boys. Their names are Shiloh and Bohannon. They're four and six. Um, and then I have a lovely girlfriend who's hopefully soon to be more um, named Mariah. And she is the absolute love of my life. And so I, yeah, I mean, I've got a family. I used to go rock climbing before it was um, I do some mountain biking and I longboard and I do therapy with kids, adolescents, teens, and adults. Um, and about 25% of my caseload is autistic. So, wonderful. Yeah. Very cool. Now, tell us a little bit about, um, talk to us for a minute about, if you can, when sure. you were diagnosed with autism, kind sure. of what that experience was like. We have. So- uh, Go ahead. Yeah, we have lots of um, parents, families who listen to the podcast and kind of interact with us on social media. And one okay. of the things we've shared before is the diagnosis story. Um, okay. Because it's, it's different for everybody is what we're well, finding out. Mine's a bit anticlimactic. I mean, it's, I don't know. So I was in a car wreck when I was 18 and I left the scene of the accident. And up until now, I'd never had a diagnosis. Um, and so then, like, an hour passes. I'm, I'm talking to my buddies. I'm like, I don't think this was a good idea to leave the CMAX. So I call the police, and they're like, no, that probably wasn't a good idea. And so the police come to the high school, and we chat, and we kind of have some talks, and they get a statement with, from me without a lawyer present. But there's all these sort of, like, nonverbal social cues, like, you should probably stay at the scene of the accident should probably have an attorney present when you um are even like a vice president well, really isn't an attorney so like you really should have somebody and like but when you're 18 and you have say autism like you don't really think about those things so i think that geared my sort of got my parents thinking like okay he's he's not catching all that's going on so they got me into uh, an outpatient clinic and they assessed me and found I have Asperger's syndrome. Okay. So that's that's kind of how it came to be. Okay. And so 18 for you would have been about how long ago? It would have been about 12 years ago. So about 2008. Okay. Okay. And at that point, we were still working with the Asperger's diagnosis, right? In the mental health field. Yeah, we still had four different diagnoses for what's now one. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was sort of that high functioning, repetitive interests, um, sort of black and white thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. And so, and so yeah, that, go ahead. I was going to say, what's interesting is, so before then, um, there was never any kind of real indications for you or folks around so, you. No, I mean, I had, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I still think I was diagnosed wrongly, but, um, I was a pretty hyper kid. I've always kind of been high energy. Um, hence those like rock climbing and mountain biking activities. But, um, so I, people knew that like, I mean, my parents knew that I was a little hyper, a little high energy, but no, no real, I mean, like, I knew, like, I was weird. I was, like, terrified to make friends or say the wrong thing, and probably wrongfully so, but, you know, it made middle school and high school really hard, and not knowing this, that was, that was kind of hard. I mean, I there was no real indication, though. 
Mm -hmm. Nobody ever was like, hey, he has autism. It was just more like, oh, he doesn't make eye contact or, oh, sometimes he's a little direct. And it was just like, no one see this. So you were you were graduating high school somewhere around 2008, right? And right. Sarah, you you were I think you're also closer to that, right? Like 2005. I graduated 03. 03. But okay. I appreciate you thinking I'm 2 years younger than I actually am. Hey, whatever I can do. <laughs> well, the the reason that I'm saying that is because I'm way more older than both of you. <laughs> and I'm I'm doing this because I'm thinking about like what autism looked like back in the early 2000s. You know, sure. and like the awareness of it. And just thinking about I mean, me being a mental health professional, I was in the profession at the time. I got into it like in 2000. Oh, I couldn't okay. I I couldn't have told you what autism was at that time, sure. you know? So I'm sure. kind of, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, um, just like you were saying, it made it harder for you in high school. Like I think back about the kids who maybe got made fun of. Sure. The ones. Well, who, yeah. Kids in special ed. I mean, right. Right. Or in different classes. Mm-hmm. Lane. Mm-hmm. Things were still segregated in Pennsylvania at that time. So I mean, had separate classrooms they weren't integrated kids mm-hmm. were kept apart i mean and it was kind of weird because like you look back on it and you're like wow this was awful but like like my high school grouped all the kids who couldn't speak english with all the kids who had disabilities it was like are you so kidding? it was just this really confusing racially inappropriate sort of like service system that, that was kind yeah. of wow okay yeah all right. Yeah. So just, I mean, just thinking about, you know, we think about autism has been around a while, but it's not been that long ago that we've struggled with trying to understand what it looks like. Right. And we and still struggle with it. Well, right. I mean, we classified four diagnoses under one label. Like, it, I mean, you got pervasive developmental disorders, you've got high-functioning autism or Asperger's. You've got autism with an intellectual disability. I think there's one more that I'm forgetting, but all four of those, like, they they all look very different. And mm-hmm. But he's just... So some people just bill with the ICT-10 code, so because Asperger's is still in there. Um, the ICD-10 is an international classification mm-hmm. for disabilities mm-hmm. for people who might not... Because other countries still use Asperger's. Yes. Like, I think England still does. I think Australia does, too. So there's a lot of latitude on what that can mean. Well, tell us a little bit what, how does autism kind of show up for you now? Because Sarah and I have talked about how autism looks different for her son than it does mine. Sure. So what's it like for you? I just think of that Temple Grandin quote, you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So for me, it shows up kind of in three real ways um i can just find where i've got my notes on it um i'm pretty rigid rigid about my scheduling um i mean now it's nice because like i work in a clinic or somebody else does the scheduling so but like i have a pretty structured schedule it helps me kind of manage my anxiety and when that structure gets thrown off i'm not exactly the nice Mm-hmm. So that's one way it shows up. Um, I struggle with not knowing 
um, kind of in that same vein of things. So, like, my girlfriend will be like, I'm going to a bachelorette party, and I don't know I'm how I'm getting home. I'm like, how can you not know how you're getting home? <laughs> you like, totally mess with me. Like, you need to be safe. You need to have a way home. Like, you can't drink and drive. And, like, all these. And she's just all, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> um, and then the third way it really shows up is, um, I have a really hard time letting things go. I mean, sometimes I know, like, in interviews, people will be like, I'm passionate about things, and I get stuck on them. But, like, I really get passionate about something, and, like, don't get off it. Like, lately it's been work, and my poor girlfriend, she'll, like, look at me like, okay, I've had enough. You need to stop now. Like, it has been a point of conversation. Because I get so stuck on these things, I just kind of go, round and round like on a merry-go-round so that's kind of how autism shows up for me and occasionally i'll be black and white sort of thinking and so that can be really challenging sometimes in the work i do have have either of you um checked out the netflix special with i think it's is it hannah gadsby atypical no, she is a comedian, and she did a special called Nanette, and now a new special called Douglas. No, no, I don't think I've heard about it. Okay, both of you have to check that out. I'm telling everybody to check it out. The reason I thought of it is because I watched just a snippet of it last night about her getting stuck on stuff. <laughs> she has, she's autistic, and she talked oh, cool. about, um, she talked about how her teacher was trying to teach the class about prepositions and they were talking about a box and she got really honed in on this idea of a box and she just kept asking her teacher questions about the box and the teacher lost it. So yes, you have to check that out. Uh, What's it called? What's her name? Uh, I think her name is Hannah Gadsby. She's Australian. She's funny, lovely lady. And the first special she did was called Danette. And the second okay. special she did is called Douglas, I think. Okay. Yeah. Guess so I'm doing after this. Netflix. Well, I'm watching. Netflix. There you go. <laughs> um, well, so we talked a little bit about how autism shows up for you. Talked a little bit about your diagnosis experience. Tell us now then how you thought about becoming a therapist and kind of how that came up for you. So it it's not really a clear answer so that's the easy answer it never is no um, <laughs> when you decide to become a therapist it's never clear <laughs> well i thought i wanted to be a policy analyst like i went to undergrad from 2008 to 2012 like with the intent to be so i went into social work after i got there and changed majors like three times my freshman year and so it's funny because at one point i was an ed major and now i like do psychotherapy with kids so like i wasn't completely off but um so i went to do social work and like i kind of came into my understanding of like oh this is what my autism is and like people would be like you're not really good with people i'm like i know it's not really one of my favorite things to do <laughs> so what's really ironic was like i started really getting into research numbers sociology religion and kind of how all those things tied together so i thought it was gonna be sociologist religion and then I fell in love with this awful girl. Like, I mean, she's still the mother of my kids and I respect her. She does a good job with them, but just, we were not made for each other in any way. 
but you know, I was 20, 21. Like I, I was young and in love and like we were at a religious college and sex was taboo. So it was really kind of just like fertile ground for like bring down the system or make it get some <laughs> And so that's kind of how I got out to Wisconsin. And so Wisconsin has title protection. And what that means is like, if you want to be a social worker and you have a social work degree, great. But if you want to be a social worker and you have a psych degree, tough shit. So, um, so that's kind of how I started working in um, an assisted living was through the title protection and the social work. And I, I kind of meandered my way from assisted living to voc rehab. Um, and I, I really liked voc rehab and I started doing my MSW and I wanted to be a policy analyst because I already had a job at the state. So it was like, okay, what's What's a couple of years? So I, I went to Case Western Reserve in Ohio, like you guys are. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. I, I'm not. I'm not. A, a, I'm not proud of Ohio. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I thought you were all this time. I, I. 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 I don't know. We have a love. I, it's back and forth. Okay. It's complicated. My relationship with Ohio is complicated right now. <laughs> You're in an entanglement with Ohio. I am in an entanglement with Ohio. Are you in a throuple with Ohio? It's not something. I'm in a, a, uh, what's it called? Like a an abusive relationship with Ohio. Stop it! Um, Stop it now. <laughs> Anyways, case was great. It was it was a hard, um, graduate program, but I appreciated that about it because it was rigorous. Um, and so I really thought it was going to be a policy analyst. I even got offered a job to be one. But all the jobs are in Madison and Minneapolis, and I'm like two hours from Minneapolis and four. From Madison and so meanwhile like graduate school started I like am going through this divorce I get cheated on it was kind of rough mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. my autism was just used to discriminate against my parenting um and so like I had to basically justify that as a person with autism I can parent and the psychologist was like okay and he talks with this like fake accent so like half the time his name's Anton smets and he uses this fake accent he's been in america for like 30 years so like at parties he uses this german accent but like or dutch accent but any other time he's just like hi i'm i'm, I'm anton and it's like really like so <laughs> he was kind of an asshole but you know i i'm pretty sure that's a standard thing feeling for anybody that's evaluating your ability to parent especially because you're autistic it's like really yeah. but the court's like they're not really with the program on autism yet. So that was very much question in my case. So I had to kind of sort through that, went back to school, finished, um, didn't really see myself getting a job as a policy analyst, didn't really want to stay at the state because the phrase that's often thrown around there is a golden ball and chain. So like it's good, but it kind of straps you down. It's meetings, it's paperwork, it never really ends. And it's not really like you get to be agile and sort of forward thinking there. And that really doesn't jive with my personality. So then I, I tried my hand at nursing home social work for a couple months and I was just like, I hate this. So about a year and two months ago, I started working for a small day treatment clinic um, right in the town I live in. And it just wasn't enough money to make ends meet. So that's why I left there and I joined North Lakes where I am now. And they've just been spectacular to work for because we work in schools, we uh, do community mental health. And so it's really about access for patients. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
Very um, needed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Community mental health is huge, and people getting access to affordable treatment is a big, big deal. Talk a little bit about, um, if you can, what made it important for you? Because you mentioned this in um, the videos that are on the website. Mm -hmm. You mentioned about how autistic people, they're underserved in mental health. Did I get that right? You were absolutely right. So so can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, So when we look at, so I'm going to start with the data and then kind of talk about client and personal experience. Um, So when we look at the data, um, what we know from research by Stadmit, Nick, Brookman, and Frazee um, are their names, these researchers that look at claims data in LA County from more community mental health services is that when we compare people with autism to neurotypical teens, neurotypical teens access mental health at a much higher rate than people with autism do it's it's a pretty significant difference um and if you're interested i can send you the powerpoint that i saw but um it's 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 kind of disheartening because it's like okay because the other finding they found in that study is that people who have autism stay in therapy longer and they engage in services for a lot longer than your neurotypical peers so there's sort of this question of like why is this so then some people from UPenn, Brenna Maddox among them, um, and again, <laughs> she's sort of like the evil empire of like autism and mental health research. It's awesome. But um, so they do this study on like community mental health centers with adults um, working with autism and 42 out of 44 clinicians didn't feel competent enough to serve people with autism. So it's sort of wow. a confidence problem. Um, so then when we get to the real clinical experience, it's like for the people I work with who come find me, they've often been through either a lot of service providers who they didn't feel like understood their autism diagnosis, um, or they've been to a provider who's basically kicked them up to a state hospital, which has then kicked them up to a state hospital, like some of these mental health institutes. Like in Wisconsin, we have Mendota and Winnebago, and I've seen people who've gone to both of those places. And those places are basically asylums because the inpatient units really don't know what they're doing. And so they look at these behaviors through a normative developmental lens. And so you get people who are really stigmatized by the system. So it's kind of like this just terrible conundrum. And that's kind of where the need comes from. because I don't think clinicians are confident and I think they tend to do more harm than good a lot of times. I can agree with that in terms of the confident and kind of competent piece of Mm -hmm. it, you know, being the clinician. Um, And I think part of that speaks to how the diagnosis of autism has grown and contracted and grown and contracted over the years. So if you have our governing body who decides on what the diagnostic criteria are, right? Mm -hmm. And they can't even make up their minds about what the criteria are. How are their practitioners supposed to be able to clearly understand, right? And then be able to clearly meet the person where they're at. All right. So... The numbers, I guess, 
doesn't shock do you want to say shock not surprise or surprise not shock that you said 42 out of 44 of us therapists wouldn't be confident or competent to work with someone who is autistic yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah it's it's disheartening and it's part of the reason like i and another group of clinicians are developing a training um, we're in the process of trying to sell it to UW-Eau Claire continuing education, but basically the model is going to focus on increasing the number of people with autism getting services by increasing clinician competence. Um, and it sort of really focuses on the parts of therapy. Um, it's really geared towards mental health, social workers and mental health clinicians, um, but we might try other people as well. But um, that's we're kind of looking at January, February of 2021 at this point for that product. Um, right now we're just piloting it to see if it works and how's it work and how's it not work. Um, it's just kind of an interesting project, but I think I it's will, really needed. I was going to say, I will eagerly await that because okay. I would love to, well, and I'll, and I'll speak to this too. And I think Sarah can kind of relate in part of this. Um, you know, I think for the last 15, 10 or 15 years, when you think of someone who is autistic, you automatically think child, you know, right. someone maybe who's under the age of 10. Right. And you don't really spend a lot of time considering that they grow up. And there's a lot of adolescents and adults who need mm-hmm. mental health support services right because of the comorbid anxiety or depression or something like that Mm -hmm. um so i think that's great that you're gonna have that training i think we need more Mm -hmm. you know just in general yeah yeah i mean general you know like there's there's only four msw programs in the country that offer um developmental disability classes let alone just four, like just four MSW programs out of the many that are out there. There are four. I happen to be fortunate to take some postgraduate classes and get one through UW-Madison, but it's just dismal. Like, I think things like this really are important. So I will definitely send you the information when it's out. Um, and it, the cool thing is the plan is to deliver it digitally. So it's it's kind of a, like... You can take it from anywhere in the country. We're going to have 10 slots for coaching um, is kind of the plan. And then we'll do that first round and then we'll offer it again. And so it'll be sort of an ongoing thing. But it's it's really cool when you have – it's a cool idea, I think, because it really focuses on having people who are willing to work with people with autism and then um, pairing that with, like, working with them as they're working on things with autism. But the cool part about it is it's really designed – to focus on the things that happen in whether it's treat specifically in treatment. So like if it's how you do your intake, then we focus on that. Or if it's how you conclude a session, we focus on that. Or how do I do a treatment plan? Or how do I connect to someone that's primarily rational and doesn't get really touchy feely and is kind of direct with me and that's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really not designed to be like necessarily a new intervention, but to build on the skills clinicians already have. Um, because there's so many good techniques already out there. Mm-hmm. It's really just about increasing confidence and confidence. I like it. Good. Um, Sarah, were you surprised? You said you were surprised about his comment about the developmental classes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I just assumed that that would be part of the curriculum. That's, like, mind-boggling and infuriating to me. Um, I'm having a hard time processing that. Well, let me, I was going to say, let me give you, and probably many of our listeners, you know, who are not people who work in mental health, is that when you go for an undergraduate degree, like typically you get an undergraduate degree like in psychology or, or something like that, some type of social science. And that undergraduate degree is very general and very broad. Um, I mean, because we have to learn about everything that's happened in the last hundred years when it comes to mental health, right? So we learn about everything from Freud all the way up through Skinner, all the way up through the latest people to come out with the newest stuff, that kind of thing. There's there's 11 different major types of therapy and, and you kind of learn all the history of that, not how to do it, but like the history of how it came to be. And then when you get into graduate school and you pursue some type of clinical work, that's when you start to learn a little bit more about how to do the clinical work, but it's a very generalized degree. It's not like we take specific classes on specific populations. Um, most of the time where you learn about those specific populations are when we do the um, diagnosing class that teaches us how to use our DSM or the Diagnostic Statistic Manual. And then um, also in abnormal psych. And that's where you get things broken down for you and kind of walked through like, this is what autism looks like. This is what bipolar looks like. This is what DMDD looks like. And sometimes um, they're all combined. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there's there's a whole other thing in there. But <laughs> but yeah, but the, the whole the whole thing is that it's a very generalized degree. And it isn't until after you are done with either of those degrees and get your licensure, it's all different for different states, that you then choose different populations to focus on. And then through continuing education, you get trained even more on how okay. to work with specific populations. But yeah, there's yeah. no... There's no... I guess um, I just, you know, working in the medical field, I just assumed it was more like you know, clinicals and fellowships and cause that's what I'm used to working for doctors, but I guess nope. I've never really asked. So I don't know why I'm like so shocked by it, but yeah, it's yeah. disheartening. I mean, it really it is, is because it's so important. And like Tara was saying, like, I mean, you don't get everything. Like I working in a community mental health center, get a lot of PTSD. Not that I want it, but it's just like, it's part of the, and like, I don't have tools for that. So like I'm getting training in, um, trying to think sensiomotor psychotherapy, just mm. because it's like, I don't have any tools for that. So I'm, I'm focusing on somatic psychology therapy, which is one of the mm -hmm. <laughs> different types of therapy, major therapies that are out there. So it's like, I mean, there's just so many and so much to know, and it's impossible to kind of know it all. But I think about like, why aren't we training people with autism? And I think it's kind of because there's this divide that exists in service delivery. And I, I blame the behaviorists. I mean, that's just kind of my beef. But, and it's a personal beef. It's nothing. It's just some people that I worked with that I wasn't really fond of. But um, 
and more the way they did it necessarily than them as people. But when I think about what that divide looks like, like here we in Wisconsin, we have waiver services for mental So we have Medicaid waiver services yep. for mental yeah, health. Ohio. And so we don't actually do any of those for people with autism because they're on a different type of Medicaid waiver. But in the system and the consortium that I'm present in, in the Chippewa Valley, like they very much are like autism is a developmental delay. It goes to the ADRC, which is the aging disability resource center. And then they're like, we don't know how to deal with these things. Here's some respite care. And it's like, <laughs> it's just not enough. Like it, and it creates this divide. So I think this program is really important to build up clinician confidence. And hopefully by training enough of these people, we can change the system. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's um, probably the biggest struggle that I've had with getting treatment and therapy for my son who has both mental health and autism diagnoses sure. is there's a lot of back and forth, you know, the autism mm-hmm. people say this is mental health. The mental health people say this is autism and neither one of them want to help. Right. So that can be super frustrating and you have to re- like, you shouldn't have to fight this hard to get yeah. the help for your kid. Yeah. And it's so frustrating. And like, I don't care who helps them, someone, anyone, both of you, I don't, either one, I don't care. Just someone help me. Right. Well, and there's, I mean, there's some good reason where people give you that resistance. I'm not saying it's good that you're getting that resistance because I don't think it is like your kids should absolutely be, have access to good help. Um, but one of the, like, when we look at, there's a study by a woman, psychologist named Dr. Cooper, I'm going to butcher her name, Cooperstein, or it's German and I can't pronounce it, but <laughs> she looked at like, why do people discontinue different kinds of therapy for their kids um, and switch to alternative, like sort of speech pathology? She's a music therapist. So like her whole thing is like, why do people go from ABA to music? And so it's sort of market research, but she looked at like um, how much post-traumatic stress syndrome comes from some of these therapies. And so post-traumatic stress syndrome is sort of what you experience after you witness a very traumatic event. So like a building blowing up, like 9-11 or like Katrina, more like you Katrina, you watch it and then you leave. But um, like for those first 30 days, you have all these trauma symptoms like nightmares and flashbacks and et cetera, et cetera. And so she looked at that for with caregivers and found that 42% of people enrolled in um, ABA actually end up having these symptoms develop afterwards and about 37 percent develop after psychotherapy and less with the alternative communication therapies and even less at baseline but then you have that other problem which is if we let it stay the same then my kid's anxious my kid's upset he's acting all kinds of just really difficult ways to manage he's dangerous right so it's like do we take the risk on so it's like this which risk is greater kind of thing but i think what makes psychotherapy and these music therapies and aba even when it's done right um control for sort of that post-traumatic stress syndrome and again this is just my opinion it's not necessarily backed up by research but um other than just a few qualitative findings is just 
how person-centered the ABA provider could be um, or, or the therapist is because there are those CBT practitioners out there who still think, like, I know best. I'm sure you probably have seen these people, Tara. Am I right? Like, have you mm-hmm. run across them in clinical practice over the years? Yeah, yeah. And kind of speaking to Sarah's point, when she's saying that I don't care who helps me, just someone help me, right? Mm-hmm. And you're speaking about there, there is a good reason for why we try to parse out who goes where to get what services, right? Because mm-hmm. we want to match somebody. But it's still, I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big yeah. issue that, that we need to understand. And I think we need to do better as therapists and come together and, and have more conversations around how do we help the autistic clients that we are serving whether they be kids adolescents adults who also experience anxiety depression suicidal ideation all the stuff yeah all the mental health stuff that goes with it and for your thing sean in terms of um like talking about like you said like aba or like the cbt therapist who know best um I think that's part, one of the things I gravitate towards is like the person-centered and gestalt. Oh, Um, cool. Yeah, because for me, there is no other in the room, right? Right. And and it's not me as the helper and you as the helpee. It's two human beings coming together to try to figure out life, right? Right. And so if, if I'm the therapist and and you think that you know you're my client and maybe i can walk with you on whatever this path is that you're on that's great and we'll walk it together um but i don't know more than you i don't have the answers right and i'm here to help you unlock the answers that you already have inside yourself absolutely but you're right not every not every therapist thinks that way and and that's kind of the challenge and i I wish more therapists did think that way. I guess mm-hmm. it's, so, so, Sarah, you don't have this experience because it's you're right. Like you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and the answers aren't sufficient. And it's like, how do you, how do you, how do you go through life? Like, like how does your son get the help he needs to make life better? Like, um, well, luckily he has a mother that awesome. isn't afraid to make some noise. Nice. to get stuff done um, nice. <laughs> um you know and we're very lucky that here in columbus ohio our children's hospital has really invested a lot into behavioral health um, they just built a huge beautiful new behavioral health pavilion that all they do there is behavioral health which is amazing um so he we have an autism center through the hospital that that's where my son goes. So he sees a psychiatrist through the autism center that manages both his mood disorder and his autism. That is awesome. And he also sees a therapist through the autism center that manages both. So we've been very lucky to find those services. Um, but it's been a long, hard road to get there. We had a hard time getting an autism diagnosis because his, um, mental health behaviors were so bad. Um, 
they were so challenging that they were like, even if he has autism, that's not what you need to be focusing on. And I'm like, cool. But if he has autism, like that's what gets him the services he needs. Like that's what we, and if he has it, like, let's just diagnose him. Like why, why is this so hard? Um, but yeah, I have, I had to fight a lot and we have the saying in our family that we use is worth the fight. And we fought and fought and fought and we still fight. And luckily it's worked out for us. Um, you know, he's getting the services that he needs, but it's been a long, hard road and it's still not easy. But for now it's it's working out. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. I, I I hate hearing that it's that hard, but it's I wish I could say it was the first time I'd heard it, but it's not. Like it is a very hard, hard, hard road faces a parent. And I think about kids with autism, like they don't have the wherewithal. Like one of the things that I think is so great about having autism, like for my own experience, was like I was super naive, but like it would be like, you have a heart of gold. And it was like this, like, like I just didn't think poorly about people. And it wasn't really till I got older that that threat perception sort of, like I had to get divorced and go through some really bad stuff before those sorts of beliefs emerged. Um, but I think how kind kids with autism are or the people with autism I work with are like they just have such big hearts and I just so appreciate that about them mm -hmm. so. talk a little bit if you can um, you were starting to talk about ABA okay. and I know when you reached out to me that was one of the things that we um, kind of started discussing um, sure. in terms of you know, would we talk about that tonight in the podcast? So I'll kind of, I'll kind of set it up and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, but ABA tends to be a kind of controversial subject in the yeah. autistic community. Um, and when you reached out to me and asked me about it, like instantly, like my mommy heart went into a panic because I was like, he's going to hate me because I put my oh. child through, you know, oh. ABA. But what I appreciate about kind of how you approached it with me is that you were like, well, we just, I just want to talk about it. And I think why I'm so excited to talk about it with you is because I'm actually considering about like D-A-B-A-ing things okay. in our lives, right? Sure, right. And, <clears throat> and so it's interesting like that you've, you know, come into our world at this point. And also, I think it's important that parents and their children have a safe space to talk about this in terms of like ABA, because there is so much parent shaming, usually mom shaming around having your child in ABA sure. therapy. And it makes me not want to talk about it. And I think I have a pretty good... Um, I was going to say, like, sense of self that, you know, like, I can pretty much talk about hard things, but I don't sure. want to talk about that because I don't want somebody to come up and be like, you're the reason your child's messed up, you know, because I've had people say that to me before. Um, Punch her in the face. <laughs> well, they didn't say it to me, but I know they said it about me. But but I think I think like if you polled 90 percent of the parents 
Like they would be like, I don't want to talk about this. It's my decision. You know, I don't. And it's it's part of it is shame and fear. And so I think if we can have a conversation about it in just a kind of safe way, I think I think if more people could do that. And this isn't something I think it would be a good thing. I'll leave it there. Yeah, we haven't talked about this a lot on this show um, about the controversy just because it does feel so overwhelming and kind of yucky. I want to throw out there that like, I have met some amazing, amazing, amazing behavioral analysts. There's this one, her name's Ellie Hartman, and she did this project for social security where she helped kids transition. Like she got $35 million to help kids transition from high school to college or high school to work and help their families do it too. And they all were on social security and helped them come off of social security in some cases. And of course that was like some of the incentive in the project design, but like there's some really amazing ABA folks out there who are really person-centered and like build into their grants, motivational interviewing training and being person-centered. And then there are other ABA folks who like, there are appropriate times where I think it's okay to not be person-centered, where you look at like, if somebody's like, and the example I always use is feeding, just because I think it's sort of fascinating how these feeding behaviorists do this work. Um, But like, if a kid's swallowing like a knife, like, okay, like that's a safety concern. But like where I think it kind of gets dangerous is sort of on this other side where it's like expedient, it's convenient, it's it's just easier to not involve the kid who's playing with trains and obsessed with trains. And, and so I've seen it always, and I, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer, but I think about that, that idea of mom saving, that's so awful. Like you're doing the best you can with what you have when you have it. Why, why are people giving you flack for that? Like what right do they have? Oh, that's you would really... be surprised. That's a really, really, that's a really good question. Yeah. And it's, Ah, uh, I don't know. It's one of those things where, like, fortunately, I have never been the direct recipient of anything like that. But in, you know, Facebook world and an Instagram world, you know, reading through the comments, um, it's just it like it's indirectly awful to read some of the comments. Um, and it and it happens. It happens regularly. Um and I'm not trying to center my voice as a parent because that's another thing that we need to pay attention to, right? When we're talking about um, actually autistic or disabled folks, like my son's voice is what counts in this, Mm -hmm. Um, but he's also nonverbal. And so I have to tell his story, right? So that people will hear it. I don't know, it just, it gets, it gets messy and ugly and I think it's because it's online where most of these discussions take discussions. And I say that with air quotes, discussions take place that, Uh, that people just get ugly and somehow it always ends up being the mom's fault, you know, for what's going on with the kid. I mean, honestly, I don't know if you know this or remember it, but that's, we came up with the term refrigerator mothers, you know, in the 1980s. Um, so somehow it, 
whatever's going on with a kid, it comes back to the mom. So yay, mom. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I but think, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say with COVID, like I feel like we've seen it more and more with like mask wearing where people mm-hmm. are just really like really mean to each other mm-hmm. in a very public way for disagreeing. And like, I just, I think about how much animosity, like that this whole situation is just, created like it was already politically divisive and then we throw in like a pandemic and a racial like just like a sort of cultural revolution in the midst of it all and it's just it kind of reminds me of what you're talking about because it's like people always want to go after someone and really you're doing the best you can with what you have when you have it I mean like yeah I, I don't see a reason to fault somebody for that because like parenting's hard like they always joke in like every time I saw a child be delivered like of my own, it was like, they don't come with a manual, but like, really, they don't come with a manual. <laughs> and then you throw and in like, And they're all what? different. Right, it's like different and then more different. And then you're just trying to do the best you can with what you know. And it's like, so yeah, I don't know. Like there are some ABA providers who I watch and they're just very like, we're gonna do it this way. And the kid's like, no, like, like I think about the kids who like, sometimes get like 40 hours a week and they're like four and you're like like if i had a full-time job at four i would be screaming too i would Mm -hmm. be running away too because i don't want to work a full-time job and i think of how like really bad that can be but i've also like talked to other people who other moms and parents who like they've done aba and their kids just excel at it because i think about like what i talked about earlier for my aunt and when it shows up structure really helps and like Mm -hmm. ABA does a really good job at structure and I think you need to understand structure before you do like more of those lack of structure things so I I think it really depends where the kid with autism is at not to mention we're fitting four diagnoses into one label Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so kind of my takeaway from what you're saying is that for you ABA is not preferred like you, right? You would prefer like ABA not happen? I I think it depends. I don't it, think it's so much like a, I think it depends on the kid. So like if a kid like yours came to see me and he's nonverbal and he doesn't have any augmentative communication devices and he doesn't know how, like there's a certain, like this would be worse on him for me to do psychotherapy with him if if he didn't have any way of communicating with me like he'd sit there i mean it might be useful for you and maybe we do family therapy but like i would totally recommend aba for somebody who doesn't have that language capacity i might recommend a speech pathologist too because they just have so many tools like usually that's something i consider when i'm working with teenagers i usually always ask the family like hey are you working with a speech pathologist and not when you get at the school because they have to be a certain threshold, but like speech pathologist, because so much of the diagnosis of autism is about language. Um, and I think that's sort of the thing that gets misunderstood in all of it is people with autism use language differently. So like I have a client who is going through sort of like a legal thing. And um, one of the things we always focus on is language about like, who's your guardian? And so people will be like, who's your guardian? And he'll be like, my mom, but his mom is not his legal guardian. And so for this person that I have either worked with or work with, 
um, like they don't make that connection, but everybody else is, and they're misperceiving what they're saying, and they're sort of misperceiving it. So I think that piece of language is really important. So it's not so much that ABA shouldn't happen, it's just that what does that person need at the time where they're at? Like if the person comes to me and they're going for a legal battle and they're really anxious and they are verbal, like that might make a good candidate for psychotherapy, but kids nonverbal and really aggressive and sort of hyperactive um, may or may not be the best candidate if they don't have the language skills. I really think it comes down to language because I think ABA can do some amazing things. Mm -hmm. um, like it just kind of depends. I realize that's not a real black and white answer, but. Well, no. And I, I, I think that's important to point out is I don't, there isn't a black and white answer. Right. right. And I, th I think it's what you're talking about in terms of it depends on the child. It, it just depends on the child. So um, what was I going to, you sent us uh, the Lovas mm -hmm. piece, and I think, Sarah, you read the Lovas article that I sent you, right? Huh. Some of it? I read half of it. That's what I could stomach. Okay. Totally the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, so what we want to point out is that for those who don't know, ABA stands for... Um, uh, Applied what behavioral analysis. Stand? Thank you. Applied behavioral analysis. The non-therapist and... got that one. Got it. <laughs> Thank you, non-therapist. <laughs> it took me a minute. <laughs> and um, it really developed with Lovas in the 80s. And he was in uh, a New York, I think it was New York Times or the New Yorker, New York Times. New Times. Yes, New York Times, 1987. Sarah wrote me back and she said this was not okay. I couldn't, right. I couldn't read. Well, some you of can't it. really, you can't really say what I actually. <laughs> right. Well. <laughs> well, basically, what happened was l let's let's give a kind of back to the roots. M many many people who are against ABA have a problem with it because it came from Dr. Lovas. And he would say something like, and he said this in the article, it's the kiss of death to be in class with other autistic kids. You won't learn anything useful, right? And his critics said that the risk that ABA puts the family in is like a pressure cooker. Um, it's an intense burden on the family. They give so much time and energy and money, which may shortchange other children in the family. For many families, the cost of training again for ABA may be just too great. So what I want to be clear and in that about article, it talks about, which I, I feel like this is a huge um, part of the issue is that article talks about how the goal of ABA is to make autistic kids undistinguishable from their peers. Right. To make them normal. Yes. Right. So when we're talking about ABA, I think it's important to kind of, let's go back to the roots to understand that this is why so many people are against it or the people who are against it, this is part of their argument is how can you have this therapy that at its roots sought to make autistic people quote unquote normal, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So Because again, we say this every episode, autism is not a tragedy. There is nothing wrong with being autistic. Autistic people are awesome. Yeah, we are. 
No, but seriously, my it's son like... is the coolest person in the entire world. Oh, I believe it. I think, I mean, that's one of the coolest things about working with people with autism is like, I'll have a client be like, yeah, I can put together a car motor. And I'm like, what? Like, I would be like, I couldn't even figure out where the oil goes in and you just rebuilt an engine. Like, (laughs) but like, there's all these little fascinating pieces about people with autism. Like, I think it's kind of fascinating the way my brain works Mm -hmm. to other people probably, but you know, like, I think that's kind of what makes people with autism beautiful is like, they're really smart. Like they can do all kinds of things. It's just, they get really caught up in sort of what it is they're doing and they kind of zone out and it's, it's kind of hard to like, it's not exactly like what we would consider socially friendly, but it doesn't mean they don't care. They don't have deep feelings. I sometimes joke with clients, like you feel deeper than anyone else I know. Um, because you get this rigid, really sort of like brick face, but underneath that brick face is this really sensitive, deep, emotional person. And I just, I think it's such a cool process to work with people like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the takeaway from what you're speaking on about ABA is that for you, it depends, right? Mm-hmm. On the kid, like yeah. where they're at. And I also heard you say it's very important for you to see that the ABA therapist is person-centered. Yeah, hands down, I think being person-centered is just good practice. Like, like I think we've learned anything from like a hundred years of psychotherapy. Like, I mean, it's that like being person-centered is more effective than not because mm-hmm. trying to coerce someone. I mean, that's how we get experiments like the Tuskegee Institute which isn't necessarily mental health focused, but like giving people all kinds of like infections because we want to control them. Like, I don't, I don't think so. I think there's just some real harm that happens there. And I think the BCBA ethics really point to them being person centered. Um, I, I don't know that that always happens. And I think they might debate me on this subject, but I think very much like, if they're going to be practicing their ethics and ethically, like they should be seeking out client involvement. They should be working with the client and the parent. Like, yeah, the parent signs and the parent has the authority to enroll them or disenroll them or DABA is, is kind of we've discussed, but like that kid has a say too, and they have a voice. And if you just ignore that kid's voice, like, are we teaching them more in helplessness? Like, I, I, I think there's something to that. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's my real piece with the ABA person. And that's why I don't refer to any specific ABA provider. I tend to say, go consult your doctor. These are some of the area providers because, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how they practice. And mm-hmm. why would I refer to somebody I don't trust? Right, right. And I have to say that for me, it made me feel better to hear you say... Um, about, you know, them being person-centered um, because the therapists that we've worked with for Finn, um, you know, even though he can't speak, he does have a voice. Well, absolutely. And he, will, he will let you know <laughs> very clearly whether or not he likes you. <laughs> he, will, he will tell you very clearly. Sure. And it's always been, you know, it's always made my mommy heart feel a little better to know, like, Probably 80, 
to 85% of the people that we've come into contact with therapist wise have been amazing and awesome. um, have made a connection with him. Um, oh, and cool. so that, that feels, that feels really good. That's awesome. And, and I take I think, it, go yeah. ahead. I was just going to ask, Sarah, go ahead. I think, I think Sarah could say the same thing about Owen. I mean, he'll let you know whether or not he likes you. <laughs> oh, in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> heartbeats. Yeah. Uh, you never have to wonder what Owen is. <laughs> Never, never. But honestly, like, I wish I was more like that. Like, I wish I had the confidence to wear nothing but superhero costumes to the grocery store. Like, I wish I was like him. <laughs> like, he is the coolest person. So cool. He is. He is so very much. Legit. He sounds legit. Like, he oh, sounds... he's the coolest. Mm-hmm. What is What kind of costume does he wear? Can I ask? Oh, yeah. So he loves the Avengers. He went through. So um, one of the like first kind of indicators that he was autistic was he was obsessed with Batman for like four years. And he can still like he can tell you everyone's backstory. He's like, well, Joker's mom's name is blah, blah, blah. And she had this. And like, it's insane. And he'll like tell you all about like Michael Keaton and how he's a better Batman than Val Kilmer was. And like this whole when he was like four, like this whole thing. Um, but now he's more into the Avengers, um, the Oops. Avengers, Star Wars, like, but really he will put a costume on. Like we can always kind of tell when he's feeling anxious because he'll put on more and more accessories because it's oh. like, if he's another person, then yeah. he doesn't have to be as anxious. So if he's got like a hat and sunglasses and a purse and a fanny pack and a watch <laughs> and it, like you, what's going on, man? Like you feeling all right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and he doesn't like the feeling of clothes, so he only wears pajamas or costumes. Okay, okay. that's really cool. Care. <laughs> yeah, right. and he's nine now, and he's always right. been that way, and I that's that's fine. <laughs> Wear so them. Cool. I'm jealous. I wish I could. Although I no, am wearing right. a vintage nightgown right now, and I'm digging nice. it. So, <laughs> kind of living my uh, best uh, life too. Oh my god, I love it. Okay, uh, so Sean. Tell yeah. me, um, so not ABA. Yeah. For you, mm-hmm. what works? You talked about motivational interviewing. Can you tell us uh, just a bit about that? Sure. So I'm just going to read you what the creators of it um, sort of say about it. And then I'm going to kind of explain it, if that's okay. Absolutely. Kind of the spirit of it, the history of it. I, I promise not to give like more than five minutes here because I know. I'm probably like boring you both. <laughs> but No, I've never heard of this. I'm fascinated. All right. So MI was founded in addiction psychology. Um, and it really like what it, so it was created by these this guy Will Miller and Stephen Rolnick. Um, and in two thousand thirteen in their sort of like the Bible of motivational interviewing, they write um, MI is a collaborative, goals-oriented style of communication with particular attention to the language of change. It is designed to strengthen personal motivation for and commitment to specific goals by eliciting and exploring the person's own needs and reasons for change and an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion. And I think to really get how MI works, you have to look at the history. Like if you look at substance abuse treatment through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we have like the AA movement and then we have sort of that act movement where it's very assertive and like in your face, but 
kind of what they were finding in the early 90s and late 80s was this approach doesn't work because these people come in with this tremendous guilt like they're going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their houses, they might lose their family or their marriages, and then we're just going to push them over a cliff and say, you have to do this or else. And that just, I don't know, like for me that doesn't work on a religious level, so why would that work on a personal level to like stop some serious behavior like drinking? And so this is sort of, this is why they started being really person-centered. And they looked at like, what is that process of change? So there's sort of three elements, which are the, we're focusing on the sort of like resistance piece. And so I think of like, oh, and does he have any, is, is he particular about any kind of food? Oh yeah. <laughs> but, For well, a while so what, like, he, um, he only ate white things. Okay. So like only like rice or bread or okay. he's a, a little, he's a little better now, but yeah, he's very particular. So his language about rice, or let's say it's brown rice you want him to try. And he's just like, no, like I am only eating white rice. That's all there is to it. That would be really resistant language. So less resist, sort of that ambivalent stage might be like, I really, really, really like white rice but I kind of am curious about brown rice. And so then readiness to change talk would kind of sound like, I'm gonna try that brown rice. And so it's sort of meeting a person where they're at to really hone in on like, how do we get you to eat brown rice? Um, so it might sound, so he might start at a place like, and I'm, I wanna backtrack, Let's let's just keep on this track. I'm sorry. I'm like thinking of two things as we're going here. I'm like, I want them both to come out of my mouth, but um, it's not coming out quite right. So just give my brain a second to catch up to my mouth. Um, so, so Owen says that all the time. Does he really? I oh, love yeah. that thing. It just <laughs> it captures the experience so well because the brain's going sort of like this with a motor at 70 miles an hour. But um, so like if, so let's say he's being resistant. Let's say he's sort of in this resistance phase. Like I am not gonna do it. Like you very much focus on what are called the ors in MI. So open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. So it might be a summary that you say back to him. And so it might be like, yeah, so you're really against brown rice and you're never eating it. Yeah, I really am, but you know, I really want to make mom happy. And it'd be like, okay, so you want to make mom happy. How can we do that? Oh, she wants me to try brown rice. And so then we're moving into sort of this brown ambivalence phase again. So like, it might be something like, and, and we're in this phase, we're sort of focusing on increasing the, the change talk and decreasing the sustained talk. So he might say some, so what's something you might say, Sarah, if you were considering uh, if you're really not going to try brown rice, but he might want to just to make you happy. Um, well, my Owen would try to get something for it. Okay. So like, what? fine, I'll try that if you buy me a candy bar. So we would start with like, so we'd start with that resistance and it might be something like, so if my, and we'd use sort of a complex reflection or maybe a question. Um, and so we'd start with sort of that, like, 
okay, we'd start with that sustained talk and it might sound something like, so you need a candy bar in order to try that brown rice. Well, yeah, like I, I really need that candy bar, but I would try the brown rice if I got it. And then it's like, so you'd try it if you got it. And it's like, you're almost leashing them in and pretty soon you're like coming up with a plan on how, like, he'd be like, okay, mom, you're getting me two candy bars for like one serving of brown rice. But what's really cool about MI is it's sort of done in the spirit of like um, these sort of four or five principles, which are um, partnership, evocation, acceptance, and compassion. So trying to be accepting and partnering with Owen where he's at in sort of this rice-seeking um, stage. And we're trying to challenge him, kind of like that, okay, what do you need to actually do this sort of piece to it? And then um, I keep opening the wrong tab and then we're, we're accepting him too because maybe he decides i don't want the brown rice and he just is like okay we're going back to white rice and the discussion ends there but it's okay because we're accepting and we can always come back to it next week um and so it's it's kind of about working with that person where they're at on those stages of change so does that sort of summarize am i like i realize yeah, i love that i love that approach it sounds very similar to um so we do something very similar oh, where, cool. first of all, we pick our battles because sure. rice and clothes are not worth fighting about. Okay. I need you to be safe and I need you to be kind of happy. Like, that's what I need from you. I don't care what you wear or, you know, eat some vegetables. Like, that's fine. But um, like, there, right. there's so many battles I'm not willing to pick. My husband, on the other hand, will pick every battle every time. Um, but we try to do like collaborative problem solving, you know, sure. like, um, what is it Rob Green? Is that yeah. his name that wrote The Incredible or The Explosive Child? Yes. Dr. Ross um, Green. Yep. That's his yep. name. I love him. <laughs> Rob so Green's a guy that went to my high school. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we've, we've learned a lot from, from that book and that really works with Owen because if he's a part of the solution, then he's much more likely to you know, go along with it. And if I, you know, if I can make things his idea, then right. he, he's going to do it. And, you know, he's not above bribing me and <laughs> I'm not above bribing him. So everything works out. Um, oh, but yeah, like when we right. started seeing the most progress is when we changed our parenting, when we changed our approach to him. Like, Owen didn't need to change. We need to change how we reacted to him. And that made all the difference. So I well, think it's great. I love this idea. Please, like, spread it far and wide. Well, that's sort of the other goal is, and I haven't, I'm not fully through the training on um, the motivational interviewing thing, but I want to train ABA people. There's no research to say that MI is effective with people with autism. There is research to say it's effective in transitions to classrooms for kindergartners. There is research to say it's effective at reducing problematic behaviors among that and primary age students. It works great with teens on um, sort of like the sort of like illicit sex, the drugs, the alcohol, and non-behaviors as well. Please talk to me about video games. My 11-year-old. Oh my god. <laughs> I do video games too. I mean, but like it, it's effective for all of these things. And so that's why I think it deserves study. But my goal is to offer training in motivational interviewing 
to people who want to use it with people with autism. I'm going to do my doctorate in social work, and my plan is to do my dissertation on this and sort of prove its effectiveness, because I see it really effective with adults with anxiety and depression. So if someone's struggling with cutting, like how do we move towards non-tissue harm, self-harm, or strategies to move away from harming yourself, um, or how do we move how do we move on being more social and just kind of getting out? And I think it works. Like, I think it, it's, it's like I said before, like good ABA, it's person-centered. It's kind of like you're talking about with changing your parenting to be to partner, but still challenge. Like, like that is the spirit of MI. And so I, I'm really excited and I hope that it, that people kind of buy into it as the research yeah. grows. I love it. Yeah, well, oh, but I think it's really important also that, um, you know, we want people to understand, like, it's okay for kids to have behaviors. Like, I have behaviors. I'm a 35-year-old neurotypical woman, <laughs> and I still have meltdowns, mm. and I still, you know, get upset and throw things and cuss a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, like we're not trying, the goal should never be to completely change your child and make them, you know, like a little robot. Right. Like that's not what we want to happen ever. At least I hope that's not what people want to happen. I don't, that's not what I want. Um, but, um, I guess that's, what's, that's, what's hard to, you know, when you, do these therapies and first of all you may not know that there's alternatives i never knew that they were alternatives like you have this diagnosis this is a treatment goodbye um but you know i think that what you said is so true we're doing the best we can with what we have and when you know better you do better and that should always be the goal right i mean you're doing the best you have with what you can when you have it and there's no guide to parenting and i mean I think that's all we can hold ourselves to is doing the best we can with what we have mm -hmm. and we have it. Absolutely. Well, um, this has this been is fascinating. Great. I know. I know. We could probably go on. Um, Sean, <laughs> you're, you're a friend of our podcast now. You can come back anytime. Oh, cool. We would love to have you again. And <laughs> But seriously, to keep us updated on sure. how the training is going and Sure. Who you might be getting it out to and that kind of thing that yeah. that'll be that'll be great so yeah yeah well, we'd love you. to have you back anytime okay. i i do have one last question though real quick because i just thought of it Go so it. talking to the parents um because we get a lot of parents who will reach out to us to say like i just got the diagnosis what have you mm -hmm. um what would you want to say to them is there any kind of words of wisdom or I think, I think keeping in perspective that your kid is still your kid, like they haven't changed your understanding of them has like, this isn't because I think you're right. Like you get these parents and they get this diagnosis on floor. but kind of what I think really comes out of it then is, is sort of these questions of like, okay, what now? And it's just like, what was it yesterday like like now you just know a little more and like we can explain some things that fit maybe but again it's just a label and it's not really changing the core of who they are it's just 
kind of giving you a little more information on their trajectory. I like to think of it that way because, I mean, I'm different, but so is everybody else. I think Margaret Mead said it when she says, you're unique just like everybody else. And I, I think, I mean, that kind of sums it and ties it all together is like, your kid is still your kid. They, they love you just as much and you love them just as much. And this isn't a death sentence, but just sort of a new beginning to a new understanding. I love it. I love it. Well, Sean, thank you so much again and come back anytime. Okay. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated it. It was great. Yeah. I'm glad we got connected. So, um, <laughs> uh, as always, here is to the complexity in our journeys, um, the joys and sorrows, the highs and lows, and may those who observe us do so with compassion compassion especially for our amazing kiddos we had such a good time tonight thank you no thank problem. you thanks Samantha for having out. yes wash your hands wear your mask don't be racist wear a mask thank you <laughs> <laughs>